Norman Olstad. He grew up with a tough guy father who'd wake him up at 4 a.m. and drag him through crazy life and death outdoor adventures. But Norman, he just wanted none of that. Until one fateful day. Except judgment. Davey Kim brings you the story of how everything changed. Eleven-year-old Norman Olstad III is on a short chartered flight with his dad and his dad's girlfriend, Sandra. They're traveling from Santa Monica Airport in Southern California to Big Bear Mountain. Norman's going to train with the local ski team and pick up a ski slalom championship trophy he won a little while back. You know, we're heading that way, and my dad's reading the sports section, eating an apple, which is his classic morning routine. My dad was in really good spirits because I'd won the ski race the day before, which was sort of a payoff for all our hard work. But Norman wasn't excited because, well, he was just burnt out. As far back as Norman can remember, his dad plugged him into every sport imaginable, scooping him out of kindergarten to go surfing or skiing down black diamond runs. His dad even gave him a nickname, Boy Wonder, for all the medals he won and his father-son adventures. Most of Norman's friends were kind of jealous. I didn't necessarily think it was cool, actually. I wanted to be on my bicycle, you know, riding around with my friends. I didn't want to be driving for nine hours to go to a ski race. I didn't want to be getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go to hockey practice. I wanted to spend the night at somebody's house, do a sleepover, wake up, watch cartoons. (laughs) I missed a lot of birthday parties, and so, yeah, I I resented that. I would complain. He would just sort of respond with something like, Jeez, Olstead, I mean, look at this. We got the snow. We got our skis on. Don't worry about being cold. If you ski a little bit, you'll warm up. <laughs> I remember where we were skiing a chute. It was way too deep for me. I was eight, nine years old. And the sides of the, the little bowl we were in was like a wall of snow. And I rammed into it, got my head stuck in the snow, and I couldn't breathe. And my dad came, skied up behind me, and pulled me out. I said, did you see what happened? And I almost drowned. He said, no, no, I had an eye on you the whole time. You were fine. He was not worried about me drowning or anything. He thought I was just looking for an excuse. He said, you know, come on, let's go. Tough it out. I thought that was pushing it too far. Up ahead, I could see through the windshield that the tops of the mountains were sort of cut off by dark gray clouds. I had the headphones on, so I remember hearing one of the radar towers mention that that another plane had had called in saying that the weather around Big Bear was really bad and that he had to go around the area. There seemed to be sort of suggestion that maybe we would want to return to L.A., and the pilot did not respond to that. His responses were like, oh, no, we're okay, we're good. Definitely made me think, huh, maybe I'm going to tell my dad what I'm hearing, but, you know, the pilot is the pilot. Not long after that, all of a sudden, we were in a snowstorm. You couldn't see out the windows. The plane was shaking. We started to actually bounce around. It's kind of scary. This went on for a few minutes until I noticed pilots moving more frantically. I can hear the engine straining, revving. I remember at this point thinking, 
I gotta tell my dad. I looked back at him, and he was smiling, and he was eating the core of the apple, which he did. He even ate the stem. He, he used the stem to kind of clean his teeth out after he devoured the whole of the apple. And he just was glowing and smiling, and he, he had these really strong sapphire blue eyes. Seeing him like that just sort of dampened my, my willingness to sort of say anything. I see through the fog and the snow a tree limb down kind of lower than where we are. And I think, there's no way. And now that I saw the tree limb, I thought, I gotta say something. And before I could, watch out, curled my body up three hard thuds. And then I woke up and I was on the side of a mountain. The Cessna plane was just a couple hundred feet shy of making it over the mountain peak. Instead, it had crashed into the San Gabriel Mountains. Now, it was hanging off a cliff over 8,000 feet in the air. When I woke up the first time and I look around, there's snow and kind of pieces of metal. Figured it was a dream. I went back to sleep. When I woke up the second time, I couldn't breathe because the seatbelt was like choking my my stomach. So I remember unlatching the seatbelt and calling out for my father. I didn't hear anything back. It was something I had said before, like when snow went into my mouth and I was choking, you know, he pulled me out. I remember that jarring me a little bit. So I kind of wiggled out of the seat and the first thing I saw was two feet sticking up with shoes on. It was the pilot's legs, and then I saw his head. He was on his back, and the back of his head, I could tell, had sort of bled out into the snow. Then then I knew it was real. I called out for my father again, and that's when Sandra called back. And she was about 10 or 15 feet up the slope, and she was still in her seat, which had sort of torn away from the plane. I crawled up to her, found her, and she had a big wound in her forehead. And within seconds, I realized that one of her shoulders had dislocated. It was kind of just hanging down like a broken wing. Sandra was very panicked. She was talking in circles and mumbling. Norman helped Sandra hobble down under the plane wing and made a small shelter. That's when he saw his dad for the first time since the crash. His dad was still buckled to his chair, but was exposed to the freezing air. So Norman plunged his bare hands, van shoes, and knees into the snow and crawled along the mountain edge to where his dad was sitting. Ultimately, he wanted to move his dad into the makeshift shelter with Sandra. And I got to him and he was slumped forward with his head kind of on his knees. I shook him, trying to wake him up. I had nothing. But he still felt warm. And that made me think that he had just been knocked out. And I got under him and I pushed and I got on the side of him and I pulled without sending him down the slope like everything else that moves. 
I'm this little 11-year-old. I was only 75 pounds, and I didn't have the strength to move his body. I was freezing. My hands were frozen. And my toes were frozen. I had no gloves. I had Vans tennis shoes, no, no ski cap or anything. And I had to get out of there. So I went back to the wing, and I got under with Sandra, and we, we spooned for body heat. We fell asleep. I had another almost dreamlike thing where I had had a conversation with my father a year before this. His truck had gotten caught in mud and we were wandering around looking for help. It was really hot. I remember asking him about what happens when you boil to death. He told me something like, you're thirsty and you're kind of disoriented. And, and then I said, well, what happens when you freeze to death? And he said, well, you're really cold and then you get tired, and you fall asleep, and you just don't wake up. Here I am asleep, it's freezing, and I'm conscious of the fact that I have to wake up. So I made myself wake up, I woke Sandra up, and I said, you know, we can't sleep, and we're freezing to death. At that point, I hear these booming kind of sound that right away sounds like a helicopter to me. I'm excited to hear this helicopter. And so I get out from under the wing and it's hovering above us and I start screaming and yelling and waving my arms. Hey, I'm, we're here, we're here, right here, right here. Helicopter's kind of like bobbing and weaving and dipping. And I'm thinking he sees me and very excited. I'm screaming and yelling and waving. Suddenly the helicopter just banks away. At that point, Norman could feel the storm picking up again. But before the angry gray clouds obscured his view over the mountain edge, Norman carefully peered down and saw among some trees, well, he thought he saw a cabin roof. I remember thinking, aha, you know, if nobody comes for us, we got to get to that cabin before dark. I go back and Sandra is asleep again and I wake her up and I tell her, we're going to freeze to death up here. We can't spend the night up here. And she says, oh, no, somebody will come, and we can't get down that mountain. And I tell her, look, I'm going. You have to come. Finally got her out of there from under the wing. I broke off some tree limbs, and I said, we're going to use these as, like, little ice axes, and you're going to jam this into the snow. You're going to lay on your stomach, and your feet are going to go down first. And I'll be below you, Sandra, and you'll keep your weight on my shoulders. I went back to my father and, and I told him that I was going to get help for us. We start down the mountain, very, very steep. At this point, you can't really see very far below anymore. At one point, Sandra kind of wandered to my right and had lost contact with me a little bit. She sat up, and I was telling her not to. Simultaneously, she sort of rolled away from me. I would sort of lose grip and start sliding, so she would start sliding. I sort of reached out, sort of leaned over to try to stop her, and she just bowled me right over and just kept sliding away, and she just shooting down the slope and just disappeared into the fog, into the clouds. Boom, she was gone. 
Norman spent the next hour following the blotchy trail of blood Sandra had left behind in the snow. When he finally found her, she was lying on her back under a cluster of trees. And her eyes were open. And I spoke to her and shook her, but she was dead. It was like I knew she was dead. I broke off all these tree limbs and I tried to pile them on her just so that the snow wouldn't build up right on her and maybe they'd keep her warm. And as I did that, I remember thinking, you know, I'm the one that made her come down the mountain. Felt badly about that. I sort of lost it for a second. I'm exhausted. I'm starving. And I'm basically just going to die right here. I remember sort of like laying on these rocks, hearing my father, geez, Olstead, I mean, look at this. We got the snow. Don't worry about being cold. If you ski a little bit, you'll warm up. That's when I realized, geez, if I had skis and I was with my dad, we would just ski down this. I used the two sticks I had and I sat on my butt and let myself slide down the mountain and I used the sticks to plant in the snow to slow me down but also to sort of make slalom turns. The inspiration to slalom down on my butt came from all my ski adventures with my father. Slalom race was my forte. In fact, that was the race I had just won the day before. After a while, God, you know, I'd fumble and scrap my way down this mountain. Suddenly I sort of plopped down onto this meadow. It was the first flat ground I'd been on in, at that point, probably eight, eight and a half hours. At that point, I see fresh footprints in the snow, and so I followed them. They deposited me onto this dirt road, and so I started down the dirt road in the direction of where I thought the cabin was. As I came around the bend, a dog came running up. Seconds later was a teenage boy. You know, he kind of looked at me, startled. Before I could speak, he said, were you in the airplane crash? And I was like, yeah. He says to me, let me pick you up. I said, no, I'll walk. But he just picked me up anyway. I'm cradled in his arms, and it, it felt good. He's carrying me down this dirt road, and I'm looking back up at the mountain that I had just come down and seeing it as this thing and the storm and the clouds, this thing that was like, you know, trying to beat me, and I beat it. That was the first time in, in a long time that I became sad and thought about my father. You know, all those things I did with my father, I had to use so much of that, more so the state of mind, the mentality. And thinking my dad's still up there, frozen, and the snow piling up on his body. And it was the first time I thought, you know, he might be dead. How can something like that happen? He was like my Superman. He was always the strongest, smartest, yet here I am alive. I just sort of thought he he gave that to me. He saved my life. taught me how to survive. It was the first time I, I ever appreciated 
the things he dragged me through. The plane groping through the fog heading for a ski resort in the mountains above Los Angeles went down yesterday morning. For hours, helicopters searched for the wreckage and survivors. As it turned out, there was only one, 11-year-old Norman Olstad. I just, I tried to wake my dad up, him, or the pilot, and, my, my, and the skin on my hands kept coming off, you know, bleeding really bad. You know, I never gave up. My dad never taught me never to give up or anything. Thank you so much, Norman. Norman is still an avid skier, and he takes his two kids on the same runs he did with his father. Read more about this story in Norman's book, Crazy for the Storm, and also check out his latest thriller, French Girl with the Mother. We'll have a link to both on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Davy Kim, and it was produced by Davy Triple Threat. Kim.